Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, April the 22nd, 2022, another long week. Another surreal week, of course, there's Ukraine. And there is also, judging from the cover of the Electronic Financial Times, my paper of reference, there's Elon Musk's weird attempt to take Twitter over. Here we have a big picture of Musk smiling. I'm not sure how often he smiles. One of my favorite tech writers on the FT is their editor of innovation, John Thornhill. And um, he wrote a piece earlier today on Musk and Twitter. He argues that Musk's brain power might be able to help Twitter, but not in the way he thinks. I'm quoting Thornhill now uh, that Twitter, that Musk's an, a, initial attempt as a, a free speech absolute, absolutist to take Twitter over for $43 billion was dumb. So that's strong words from the FT, from John Thornhill, who doesn't generally, I think, call people dumb. John knows what he's talking about in terms of uh, innovation and startups. He's not just a journalist and the uh, innovation editor at the FT. He's also a late starting entrepreneur himself. Um, he founded uh, uh, a, a, an online tech uh, news uh, resource called Sifted, and I'm thrilled that John is joining us from the Sifted office in Shoreditch. John, uh, how does an old FT guy get into startups? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Surreal? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, the truth is it's somewhat accidental, um, but uh, six years ago now, I was deputy editor at the FT I took on a new role as innovation editor uh, to increase our coverage about tech and to write about tech and innovation. And one of the things I did was to try to do some innovation as well on the editorial front. And while I was going around the world um, writing about uh, tech and researching it, I thought there was an extraordinarily interesting story happening in our own backyard in Europe, uh, which no one was really kind of picking up and taking that seriously, which was this emergence of a whole new generation of startups. Obviously, we've seen it uh, for decades in Silicon Valley and in China, but it was happening in Europe, and I didn't think anyone was really capturing what was going on. So I thought that there was an opportunity to write about this. The FT was very interested in the idea, but didn't think it was worth financing 100% because we write about the commanding heights of the economy, and we don't focus so much on kind of startup world. So I was rather curious and thought that maybe we could launch something backed by the FT, but which would be a standalone startup. And I thought there was something quite honest about being a startup, writing about European startups. And it's certainly given us a, a kind of great respect and a great insight into the world that we're trying to write about. John, um, this Keenon show began many years ago, back in 2010 on TechCrunch. Mike Arrington's startup about startup culture in the United States is sifted the European, or were you trying to be the European version of TechCrunch? You're nothing. There's probably no one in the world less like Mike Arrington than yourself. I know both of you. <laughs> oh, that's, I'm not quite sure how I should take that. But, you should um, take it as a compliment. Thank you, Andrew. 
uh, well, I, I mean, I think uh, we're trying to do something a bit different. I mean, uh, I think TechCrunch does a great job. They tend to focus mostly on the kind of funding rounds and the news of what's going on. Uh, we're not covering that religiously. We don't write about every kind of funding round. We're trying to write more about the kind of news behind the funding, uh, write about startups, how they operate, what are the issues they confront, how they can raise money, um, what it's like running a startup, what are the issues they're facing. So we're trying to get a bit more embedded into the world of startups and writing it from their perspective, not just looking at it through a kind of funding perspective. John, before we get to talking a little bit more about what you've learned at Sifted, let's go back briefly to our friend Elon Musk. Um, is he insane in, in trying to take Twitter over? Is this just the ravings of a man who has too many billions of dollars or, or is there some coherence to what he's doing? Well, I mean, I think uh, if you happen to have uh, wealth of what, $260 billion, uh, it does open up quite a world of possibilities for you. And I'm sure, I'm sure all of us have kind of had pub conversations where you talk about, well, I think Twitter ought to be able to fix what they do by doing this, that or the other. He's in a position to be able to make that happen. Um, I mean, I think it clearly is a bit of a brainstorm in one sense. Uh, he's got very strong opinions about what he thinks ought to happen at Twitter. Uh, and he has the ability to probably uh, make that happen. Um, but, you know, I think it's uh, in one respect, I think he could add a lot of value uh, to Twitter. I mean, he's obviously an extraordinary entrepreneur. He's embedded in this world. He's a phenomenal tweeter himself who understands how the technology uh, kind of operates and interacts with the real world. On the other hand, um, I mean, it's chilling in many respects to have one individual who would be the world's richest man who would be in charge of the world's town hall. I think that raises huge kind of questions. Well, of, we already have Zuckerberg. Uh, I mean, he's just one, one step away from, you know, he's the next logical step after Zuckerberg, isn't he? In every sense. Is, is that a good model, Andrew? I seem to remember. It's not a good model, books, but you didn't it, think it's it was not that. I, I'm certainly no fan of Musk or Twitter or any of this stuff, as you know, but um, I, I don't see it as... It, it makes sense in terms of the next chapter in the evolution of multi-billionaires, media, and the crisis of information, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think uh, there's also a bit of kind of billionaire vanity in there as well, isn't there? There's obviously this massive tussle between Musk and Jeff Bezos uh, over uh, who is the kind of richest billionaire and the most successful entrepreneur. And if Bezos has um, the Washington Post, then maybe Musk has to have uh, Twitter. One has a kind of old school media assets, which is rapidly digitalizing, and the other has um, a new um, media startup. So um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I think um, th that is, uh, I guess, the, the way the press barons of old used to operate. Uh, you had incredibly rich individuals who wanted to buy media properties to have a, a media voice. But I'm not sure it's the best way of uh, running a democratic debate, is it? I wonder how much value there really is also to Twitter. I was checking out the Sifted um, Twitter page, um, and you have, uh, this morning at least, 29.1 thousand followers on Twitter. But on LinkedIn, you have 47, over 47,000 followers. It's much harder to get followers on LinkedIn. They're much more valuable. Did you make a decision on Sifted in terms of social media platforms are determining where the value is? That's a very interesting question. I mean, we experimented clearly with both and we did get a lot more resonance on LinkedIn. I mean, I think 
our articles are a lot more shared. It's a easier platform to create a kind of community and a debate. Um, when we post our articles there, we often get a lot of kind of response and people begin to debate and you can create a kind of network of individuals who are interested in that subject and want to participate in the debate. And uh, Twitter tends to be obviously a lot more fast fire, um, ephemeral, immediate reaction, and then you move on to the next tweet. So for us anyway, uh, we found LinkedIn was a more kind of resonant platform for us. What is it about the FT, John? And uh, and um, I'm not just complimenting you because you're on the show today, that makes it such, not just a resource for obviously financial and political and economic news, but a moral resource. It seems to be one of the very, very few publications that's maintained both a moral anchor and some sort of identity. And I would contrast you, I think, in, in many ways with both the Washington Post and the New York Times um, and perhaps even the Wall Street Journal. There seems something quite unique about the FT. Have, has it been achieved because you're not owned by Jeff Bezos or the Salzburgers? That's an interesting question. I mean, our previous owners was Pearson, which was a kind of British conglomerate, which were very respectful of the editorial independence of the FT. Uh, I think um, Nikkei, our current owners, the Japanese uh, publishers, have been equally respectful, uh, very um, kind of determined to maintain that kind of editorial integrity. And I think uh, maybe that culture that you have described really stems from uh, a real kind of collective spirit at the FT. Um, we're not a terribly hierarchical organization, I think, um, and we uh, is an extraordinary collection of very bright, engaged, committed individuals who feel strongly on a lot of different subjects. And there's a kind of constant challenging of opinions within uh, the news organization about what we think about the state of the world. And uh, I think an in incredible curiosity about how the world works, uh, both in theory and in practice. Um, I think a, a lot of the kind of columnists want to like like to theorize about how the world works and a lot of the reporters then go out and discover how it really works in practice. So I think there's a kind of constant internal debate, uh, which I think is a very healthy kind of culture, uh, which I'm glad you appreciate. Yeah, and again, I probably, you know, I mean, you certainly cater to a certain type of person. I'm not sure whether that's a good or a bad thing. You've learned a lot, clearly, um, John. Uh, you learn enough at the FT, particularly as their innovation editor, to do your own startup. And you wrote a wonderful piece, I thought, a couple of weekends ago for the FT. Seven lessons from a late starting entrepreneur. It could also it could almost be the beginnings of a book. Perhaps you might write the book on it eventually. Um, talk me through uh, Sifted <laughs> very briefly. I mean, how emotionally turbulent has this been as a as a late starting um entrepreneur you had a piece in sifted i saw uh what's it like being a startup founder over 40 i think you're just about over 40 john aren't you uh yes and certainly in my 50s so uh, i thought that these startup uh, entrepreneurs in their 40s were very young to me but uh, i mean i think um in that piece um the kind of uh, average age of uh entrepreneurs launching companies is about 45, which is a lot older, I think, than the kind of mythology would tend to suggest. Um, and I think um, starting, starting a business later in life both has 
big advantages and quite considerable disadvantages. And certainly people of my age who have started businesses all say to me, I wish I had done this 10 years younger. Um, and so that uh, is one element of it. Um, well, that's the wisdom, it, though. You never have 20-year-olds saying, I wish I'd done this 30 years. Uh, I wish I'd done this 10 years older. But they're the ones probably usually fail. And it's the older ones who perhaps might have more success. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, age does give you certain advantages. Um, I mean, I think it um, enables you to put life a, a bit more in perspective. Um, you do have a, a, a accumulated experience. Um, you have had kind of knocks along the way, and so you can kind of deal with setbacks, uh, possibly, uh, and put them in context a bit more. And I think also you obviously have a, a um, built up a range of uh, network of um contacts who can be invaluable in um, helping you uh, crystallize an idea and then putting it into practice. And I think that was one of the things I found that um, uh, just asking for advice from the people I knew was kind of invaluable in um, trying to develop an idea and then to develop, uh, implement it. Yeah, you certainly don't sugarcoat the experience as a late starting entrepreneur. You, um, you quote one entrepreneur, who described the VC investment process as like undergoing a body cavity search by someone with a faulty knowledge of anatomy, which is a rather painful metaphor. Um, would you still advise other people to do it? I mean, do you regret it or are you happy you've done it? I'm very happy I've done it. I mean, it's, uh, I think, an extraordinary experience and I've been incredibly lucky to be able to do it. Uh, but I think, uh, I mean, it's one of the things we write about at Sifted, that there is this kind of glamour, this mythology of um, startups, that it's all incredibly exciting and um, you can change the world and put a dent in the universe. But in reality, I mean, as we know from the statistics, 90% of startups fail. Uh, failure as well is considered to be, a, in, in some senses, a kind of sign of virtue that you've got to fail in order to succeed again. But failure is a, a pretty terrible thing, as we all know as well. It can kind of crush people's lives and destroy relationships. So there is a real kind of downside um, and uh, a dark side to, to startup life, but the kind of exhilaration that you get and the kind of sense of fulfillment from creating something from scratch and building a team of people, I think is um, something that I certainly haven't experienced before. I'm guessing that 90% of, of startups fail is actually a low number. I'm guessing it's, it's high. I guess it depends how you define what failure is but as you suggest and this is your first lesson uh ideas are great but execution is all that's lesson number one it's probably the most important lesson of all isn't it for uh either a, a late starting or an early starting entrepreneur john you simply have to execute you can have the most brilliant idea in the world but it doesn't really matter if you can't execute it yeah, I th think that's right. I mean, uh, I have always wanted to write a book, but I've never got around to it, unlike you, Andrew. Um, and I think that's true of so many people who want to start a business. I speak when I tell people what I've done, they say, oh, well, I've always had this idea for wanting to start a business and never quite got around to it. So the first thing is you just have to get up and do it. Um, and uh, that in itself is clearly a, a massive step to take. Uh, but you can die wondering whether your idea would have ever worked. Yeah, you did it in a funny way um, through uh, the Stanford. You took a class at Stanford Business School to write a 
a business plan, although some people suggest that the secret of a great business plan is not to write one. Was that useful, doing a course in startups and writing a plan? I mean, I guess you had the inside track at the FT. And as you said, you're in a sense an entrepreneur rather than an entrepreneur. So you had a fairly sympathetic audience. But nonetheless, what did you learn from learning about startups and uh, doing a business plan? Was it valuable? I think the experience of the kind of case studies um, in themselves are uh, fantastically interesting and useful. I mean, they have a lot of very work or worked out case studies on which types of business work and why and which ones fail and uh, why. And so I think just the discussion in the classroom uh, was very useful. Uh, I think also over the course of the weeks which we were doing um, this program, I had a team of uh, six um, fellow students and we were working up this plan and one week we'd focus on the finance, the next would be strategy, operations, marketing and so on. And then you would get challenged by the faculty at Stanford who would just rip the uh, business plan apart every week. And I think, um, was it Dwight Eisenhower said that um, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Um, and I think that, well, that's the old Mike Tyson quote. You can plan as much as you want, and then you get punched in the face and all the plans Why, become irrelevant. Indeed. So, I mean, I think you're right that uh, plans by themselves are useless, but I think the planning, thinking through, uh, kind of trying to understand what is novel that you're offering, uh, what, what is the market that you're trying to uh, sell into? Who is going to buy you? What they're going to pay? I think that's an invaluable kind of process to go through. Um, and maybe it's something that you can do by yourself. But in a, in a sense, uh, it's very helpful to do it in a structured way. And so I think it was certainly provided a lot of confidence to think that uh, we weren't completely crazy to want to launch this for real. What's the business model of Sifted? Is it a subscription model? Is it advertising? I mean, there's only a couple of models for online media, isn't there? Sure. So uh, we generate, um, uh, that for the moment, the, the majority of our revenue from very traditional sources of kind of sponsorship and advertising, uh, both on the site, for newsletters, for events, for reports that we do. Uh, a year ago, we launched a subscription service um, and so we are charging um, membership subscription for that, which is going very well. I mean, it's a, always a slow grind uh, when you launch a membership scheme, but we're very pleased by the reaction we've had to that and how we're building that up slowly. Um, and then um, I think further down the line, um, we want to move more into the world of kind of business intelligence. Um, we have somewhat grandly titled the Sifted Intelligence Unit, which um, creates a lot of reports uh, kind of in-depth 24-page uh, reports on a particular sector. Um, we can uh, sell those um, and um, uh, making money out of those as well. So I think there are a whole stream of different ways that you can make money. Um, but I think uh, kind of recurring revenue that you can get from subscriptions and also um, trying to provide more kind of insights and intelligence on this world is the way that we see that we want to develop the business. John, you got these seven lessons. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's one lesson that's missing, or maybe it's not missing, it's consciously missing. Um, in these kind of lists, there's usually, uh, an, uh, the entrepreneur says, you need an exit strategy, but you don't have an exit strategy. You, you don't mention having an exit strategy for in these seven lessons. Is that because you don't think it's wise not to think of actually how you're going to get out of this, how you're going to sell the business? Um, 
I mean, it's it's not something that uh, we fixate about at all. I mean, I think uh, my co-founder Casper and I are just very much focused on trying to create something that's valuable and then to grow it um, as fast as um, we can and uh, um, and to build as solid a business as we can. Um, and then uh, that we hope will be valuable to someone, whether it's another media organization or whether it's um, uh, another investor who wants to come along and buy it, then um, that's, uh, I think, down the track. But for the moment, we're certainly kind of uh, fixated on trying to um, create something of real lasting value, uh, which is difficult in the media world, which is so fast changing. Do you think that these lessons could be applied to life too? Uh, you've got fine fellow travelers, which is make friends fast or create collaboration and community. You've got treasure patient backers, which means you need supporters. Uh, and then you've got learn from mistakes quickly or die. Isn't that true of life generally? John? Yes, yes. I think um, kind of life cycle, life cycle of a startup um, resembles a life cycle um, that uh, I think you do have to uh, certainly kind of learn um, as you go along and um, try to understand how the world works. Um, it's enormously helpful if you can do that uh, in the companionship with other people that think the same as you do. Uh, so yes, for sure, I think there are a lot of kind of life lessons um, that can be learned. And I think um, Maybe one of the things about business is that we have this whole kind of mystique about it and we have business schools and incredible kind of academic case studies of, of what uh, business is all about. But as you say, uh, it is life. It's a, such a central part of uh, our lives. And so the lessons that make people successful in their lives are probably exactly the same ones as make people successful in business. And that's why I think your your seventh lesson is perhaps the most interesting. Uh, it's called Water on Granite. Maybe you would explain what that means and why it's so important, maybe the most important of all the seven lessons. Sure. Well, several years ago, um, I went to write an article about a guy called Bill Strickland, uh, who was a social entrepreneur in Pittsburgh, uh, who I thought was an incredible um, individual and I found very inspirational. And he had started from a very poor background in Pittsburgh, uh, and his life, in a way, had been saved by pottery, um, strange as that, though that seems. At the school that he was at, an art teacher uh, just uh, helped him develop a love of uh, throwing pots. And he realized that he got into the flow. Uh, he couldn't concentrate on anything else when he was uh, throwing his pots and realized that that was what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to give other people that sense of um, uh, self-discipline and self-worth that he had experienced um, and so he went and knocking on a lot of doors in Pittsburgh raised money uh, created a company called the Manchester Bidwell Corporation uh, they built this kind of seven million dollar uh, school in Pittsburgh they've opened schools around the U.S. and abroad as well and and I think he, he has done an amazing job of um, uh, just um, helping to educate and give a sense of self-worth to a whole generation uh, of kids who've come from kind of pretty poor backgrounds. And he had this phrase when I interviewed him uh, about what was the of his success. And there were a number of factors he identified. I mean, one was uh, you've got to stay humble. You've got to accept that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You've got to keep your eyes on the prize. You can't be uh, distracted from what you really want to achieve. But the third, I think, and most important of what he said was that it's just like water on granite. You can never give up. Uh, you just have to keep going every single hour of every day, trying to implement what your vision is. 
Um, and that was probably a lot harder for him than it has been for me because I've started with so many advantages of kind of trying to grow a business out of the FT as it were. Um, but I took a lot of inspiration and encouragement from, uh, from Bill because I think that's the essence of it. Um, every entrepreneur I speak to who has started a startup never has never realized when they started it just how hard it's going to be and how you have to keep persisting every day uh, dealing with crises pretty much uh, every day in order to build something that's really durable yeah and we can make fun of people like musk but the guy's a remarkable individual and building you know two or three or five successful businesses there's something unique about that let's end john with you going we're going back to you as the uh, uh, as the innovations man at the FT, uh, you had an interesting piece last month on financial bubbles of the crypto madness leading to a golden age of productive growth. What do you make of the latest mania in Silicon Valley, Web3? We've done all sorts of shows on that, crypto. Um, is there anything in it, uh, this idea of uh, the end of power, doing away with top-down hierarchies, or is it just more Silicon Valley nonsense? Who knows? Uh, I mean, I think it's such a fascinating, open question, and no one really has the answer at the moment, do they? But um, my hunch would be, I mean, this is just a huge kind of turmoil and ferment and um, intellectual ideas being thrown around. Um, something is going to stick. I, I think probably whatever we think it is today is going to be proven wrong in a few years' time. But I think we do go through these um, waves of um, great creativity when new technologies come along and change the established ways of doing things. And then uh, new paradigms emerge and we see a whole new way that uh, the world operates. And you know, I mean, historians like Carlotta Perez, which who I think- Right, I was going to mention Carlotta. She gets a lot of mention. I've, I've seen her speak several times. She's actually really interesting. She has a book out arguing or a series of books are arguing that even when booms bust, the initial investment is extremely meaningful. John, any any other books in addition to Carlotta Perez that you think people should be reading on top of the FT and Sifted? Uh, well, I think I have to mention, um, uh, given what's going on in Ukraine, um, I've always been a massive fan of uh, Vasily Grossman, who uh, mm. the Russian writer who uh, extraordinary war correspondent in the Second World War and spent a thousand days in the front line. Um, and then... He wrote this extraordinary book called Life and Fate, which was never published in his lifetime in the Soviet Union uh, because it almost equates Nazism and Stalinism. Um, it's this extraordinary kind of um, war and peace of the 20th century. Uh, but I think as a way of understanding the, the tragedy of Ukraine and how these um, that part of the world has been ripped apart between Nazism and Stalinism and all of the dreadful echoes of that that we're seeing today, um, it's a pretty sensational book, and I think one that really resonates again today. Yeah, and you you know your Russian literature. You were the FT man in Moscow for several years. Finally, John Thorn to, uh, Thornhill, the founder of Sifted and the FT's innovation editor. John, um, from the point of view of your twin lives at Sifted and in, in, in startup land where you're speaking in Shoreditch and the more establishment world of the FT. Who runs the world these days in late April 22, uh, 2022, John Thornhill? Uh, I'm going to give you a slightly bizarre answer, but I think it's dreams. Uh, I don't know if, if you know this concept, but it's something developed by Susan Blackmore, 
uh, a psychologist and um, she argued that dreams uh, or electronic memes are the kind of third great replicator. We had genes, we then had memes and dreams are kind of electronic memes, whether they're, they're kind of what uh, generate the recommendations on your kind of Spotify uh, news list or uh, sound list, um, or whether they are the kind of auto recommendations that you get elsewhere. I think it's a fascinating idea um, and that the idea that um, the kind of electronic memes are developing and are beginning to shape our lives and dictate our um, sense of who we are and what we like. Um, even Susan Blackmore, I think, believes that this is a bit of a way out theory at the moment, but I'm personally rather intrigued by that. And every day we see tech develop, I think there's something to this theory.